Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and will return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producers' picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next. How can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, Summertime Producer Picks, we highlight two segments from previous shows. Jay Morant sits with Jeremy Besh, a DEI consultant who walks through an exercise that examines one's own identity and privilege in order to be a good ally from June 10th of last year. Then, Bridget I. Povalenza talks with Will Green, Regional Office Director of New York State Network for Youth Success. The two discuss racism, youth, and education from June 23rd of last year. First, Jay Morant with Jeremy Besh from June 10th of last year. This is Buffalo. What's next? Good morning to you. I'm Jay Moran. Our guest this time around is Jeremy Besh, strategic consultant with a little bit of focus here on DEI. And we want to make sure that we make sure everybody knows what DEI is, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, thanks very much for joining us. Sure. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to do a little exercise in a little bit here. We're going to give us a little chance to breathe here before we get into it because that's going to involve uh, taking me through some of these exercises that I know that you do with various groups. And you actually did one earlier this week with a group. Interesting, it was the first one that you did since the May 14th shootings. And you're experienced in this, but this particular case was a little more challenging perhaps? Yeah, so I've been doing this work in and around Buffalo for since 2005 in one way or another. And I came to it originally as a school administrator, a dean of students, person at my school who was primarily responsible for student life. And I learned early in my trainings that uh, this was a great way for me to better connect to my kids and their families, particularly around ways in which I didn't have direct experience. So having that conversation post May 14th, felt different in some sense because for years I've been focused on helping people move into this maybe more comfortably uh, than they would if, if they had to jump right in. But I'm also feeling sort of a new sense of urgency, uh, a greater sense of frustration to the point where uh, let's let go of some of that comfort, right? We, we need people to jump in now. And, you know, you can figure out how to do it the right way along the way. And I'm happy to provide people with guidance around that. But I was more emotional than I typically am when I do these things and had to use notes for the first time in a long time to keep me on track because I knew it was going to be very easy to sort of fall down these emotional rabbit holes. That was your response. What about uh, from your group? Was it a little bit different this time around than other ones? Like you said, you've been doing this for a few years now. Yeah, uh, this was a a group of about 60 folks, and it was interesting because most of the time when I do this, just based around the way Buffalo's built, uh, the rooms that I'm talking to, it's mostly white white audiences with, you know, some people of color sprinkled in. And those those numbers have been shifting, particularly over the last five years, uh, but still mostly white rooms. And for lots of reasons, the folks of color... um, will often sort of nod along and um, offer support to some of the historical documentation I'm giving around, you know, why Buffalo is the way it is and the choices we've made that have gotten us here. But the questions particularly come from white folks. I had a a lot more participation from friends of color in in the meeting the other day. And I think it's because everybody, especially folks who have, I've lived adjacent to this for a long time, right? As As a practitioner, middle-aged white guy trying to help others figure this stuff out. But for folks who live directly in it, who deal with these problems day in and day out, I understand the sense of urgency. I understand the elevated frustration. I'm feeling it, and I don't live in it. Um, And I think that's an important thing for us as white folks, as allies, as neighbors, to recognize about our black friends in the community, 
is it's exhausting. It's exhausting to deal with this stuff all the time. And our job is to support each other, uh, which sometimes means staying silent, but always means being present. And I think as a community, we can do a better job of that. We're going to go through this exercise here in uh, just a little bit. And I'm looking forward to, to getting into that for sure. But at the same time, this is a, a kind of a large ranging question, but you're going to take me through this exercise. It's going to show me how to reflect upon myself, my privileges, and what I can and cannot do with those. I'm wondering, and this is a large question, this show is really connected with the WBFO listening audience. And I'm wondering if it's a feeling, a sense that everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to find a way to do this and, and be better neighbors to everybody here in Buffalo. And I'm wondering if that's going to be possible if people aren't taking these steps to really go through this type of reflection. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I would guess that I would guess that this truly being helpful, right? Finding a way to bring greater equity, bring more attention to this as a long-standing historical problem, right? May 14th was a tragic day that we will all remember forever. But May 14th did not come out of nowhere, right? We spent decades building the structures that we have in our neighborhoods that allowed this to happen, right? The shooter did not choose the east side by accident. He did his research. We know that. And the east side looks the way it does because we have made intentional decisions as a broad community to divest resources and infrastructure, to isolate the people that live there, and in, in many ways to make their lives harder daily than they needed to be. So trying to find a way to balance both the pain that comes with the tragedy with the pain that should come with recognizing that, hey, we all did this, right, is, is a hard thing. And to do that, I think you need to have an understanding of who you are, what you bring to the table, and then figuring out how can you use that to actually help others. It's interesting, just to add on to that, how some of those slogans that have become so common with our city, the city of good neighbors, Buffalo strong, how hollow they feel when you really sit down and think about what's happened to not just those 10 people who got killed and their families, but everybody connected to them. And that's, we're talking thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, and sort of that hollowness that so many of us are seeing now is also not new, right? If, if you have friends in the black community, I have friends for decades. We've talked about the city of good neighbors, really, because what's become clear to a lot of people who aren't afforded that same kindness every day, right? And so in this case, we're talking about black members of our community, is that we are, we are a friendly city. We're known for that worldwide, but we're friendlier to outsiders than we typically are to ourselves. And that's problematic, right? And, and a lot of that comes from isolation. You can grow up in this town and never have to spend any sustained, significant, genuine amount of time with someone whose experience is significantly different than your own. And when you live in a silo like that, it becomes easy to not see what's, what's happening all over the place. It, it almost seems a little counterintuitive, but that's why understanding your own identity is important, because you need to know where you come from before you can engage with folks who come from different places. But that's why I, I usually start with identity first. And I want to get into that. I just also want to say, because as we're talking here, there's a lot of ideas going back and forth here. And you know, we're talking about the city of good neighbors. You want to find a, a, a neighborhood of good neighbors, go down to Jefferson Avenue. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The grace that I found there has really been remarkable for sure. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, gl I'm glad you raised that because I commute to work by bike a lot. And I have a number of clients and a number of friends who live along the Jefferson Corridor. So I'll ride up and down there. And one of the things that's frustrated me about all of this, especially the sort of expanded attention we've gotten as a city since May 14th, 
is we're glossing over the fact that these this is these are neighborhoods, right? Yep. Whether you're talking about Hamlin Park or Cold Springs, these are people who are hanging out on their porches, talking with their neighbors, playing with their kids, walking to their local shops. This is a neighborhood just like a neighborhood in Emwood Village, just like a neighborhood in Tonawanda, just like a neighborhood in, in Clarence. And we lose that when we talk about, you know, quote unquote, the east side. Right. And I really wish we could get back to focusing on these are people just like you and me in their homes, in their neighborhood. Now, highlighted, I think, by the absence of this store, uh, there was an element of a, a quality of life element for people who lived within that vicinity. It was the one, I wouldn't say the one thing, but it was definitely a of great value because you could walk there if you were a senior citizen or take a short drive. Right. It was right there for you. I, I think sometimes that gets lost in this. Well, how you can go across to Wegmans, you can go here. You, no, you you've lost something that is key to your neighborhood's identity here. Yeah. Last week on this program, um, you guys had Alex Wright from the African Heritage uh, Food Co-op Project, yep. and I loved what he said about you know, please let's stop calling this a food desert, right? This is food apartheid. Deserts happen naturally, organically. The resources from the Jefferson Corridor were, were pulled out intentionally over time. And that neighborhood had to fight to get that supermarket. Right? We know this. Right? This, is, this is a story that we all should know. And it really sort of puts a pin in it to see what happens to that neighborhood when all of a sudden access to that market is pulled away. I hope that this will not only open our eyes as a broader community about the things we've done together to make this happen, but also I really hope it gives it some staying power around how can we collectively work to make it better. We we're talking with uh, Jeremy Besh uh, this morning, a strategic consultant, does a lot of work with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, he has uh, nice enough to come in here to uh, take me through some of the exercises that he takes his groups through uh, when it comes to trying to uh, teach us a little bit about ourselves. So, Jeremy, without further ado, <laughs> uh, take me through here. And uh, if I occasionally take a, uh, take a break or something like that, I might ask a couple of uh, other questions, but uh, uh, take me through it. Sure. And, um, and by the way, <clears throat> at home, go ahead and do it on yourself yeah, please. and uh, listen to me. <laughs> um, this is great work to do. I, I often share with groups that I'm talking with that this work isn't just around race. This work makes you a more aware person. Right. I, I know for a fact that my having trained in this work as I was, you know, raising two young kids, as I was a young husband, you know, to now a middle aged husband, made me a better dad, made me a better husband. It's made me a better friend. So this is work worth doing. And it essentially a progression, um, where you do reflective work and you think about your identity. Who are you? Where do you come from? How have you grown to be the person you are? So for me, and I'll I'll ask you to sort of repeat some of my answers from your own perspective sure. in a second. Um, I often talk about how I grew up in University Heights uh, over by UB South Campus. And growing up in that neighborhood allowed me to feel normal in a community of people, uh, many of whom did not look like I looked or had the same experience I did, right? We had folks from the international community attached to UB. I think about half my class in elementary school were kids of color. It was just a regular everyday occurrence to see people and, and, and live with people whose lives were a little bit different. So when I talk about where I'm from, I've, and I should be clear, I didn't know any of that while I was living through it. Sure. I didn't understand the importance of it while I was living through it. It's only through reflection and doing this identity work that I've come to understand that that was foundational for me. But it, it lets me know, okay, this is why when for, for a while I lived in uh, southeastern Michigan outside of Pontiac. And I felt more at home in Pontiac, which is an urban environment much like the city of Buffalo, than I did in some of the suburbs because it was a lot like the neighborhood I grew up in. And you just feel at home in a place like that. So for me, part of my identity is growing up in that diverse neighborhood. So, Jay, where... Tell me about where did you grow up? Sure. I grew up in Hamburg on Chapman Parkway, not too far from uh, the Lake Erie shore. Okay. Went to uh, Catholic grammar school and all boys Catholic high school. All right. And uh, no, I think there was one black family in our neighborhood growing up at uh, my all boys high school. I think we had uh, maybe all four grades, maybe 
a dozen uh, black guys. Yeah, so different experiences, right? And it might be, and I'm making an assumption here, that at some point in your life, when it came time for you to think about these things and sort of examine what your role in them could be, it, it may have seemed more foreign for you, less comfortable for you than it was for me. And we each have those different experiences. Another example I'll talk about often is sort of, and we'll, we'll get into this later, you know, there are things that we do that we control, that we have agency over, and there are things that sort of happen regardless of the choices we make. I was lucky to have uh, two parents who stayed together, uh, who are still together to this day, who gave me a good balance of both independence but also guidance, um, and who chose to live in the neighborhood I lived in, which provided me with easy access to good schools, a good peer group, and, you know, generally just an, an easy way of life, right? I didn't do anything to earn those things. I also had no say over whether or not my parents were stable and stayed together, were employed their entire lives, etc. Your background in that sense. Sure. So my parents were married for um, almost 60 years. There were six children in the family. So I had I was right there in the smack in the middle of that whole, whole group right there. So I had uh, older brothers who learned the hard way how to navigate through my father's discipline. Yeah. So I learned the, I learned very fortunately that uh, how to uh, make sure that I didn't cross those lines a lot when I was a, a younger fellow, for sure. But yeah, like you said, um, you know, as I look back, of course, um, it was a, a great way to, to grow up. Perfect. And, so, and then a third example. So, and I wish the listeners could see us because we do actually look fairly similar. Um, <laughs> You're in better shape than I yeah, am. I describe myself when I do these functions as middle-aged, white, straight male. I'm uh, over six feet tall. I had two athletic parents, so I was lucky enough to be an athletic kid. And as, like you, I went to Catholic elementary and high schools, uh, an all-boys high school. That mix of circumstance, right, being tall, being athletic, being male, um, being white, all of those things made that pathway for me far easier to navigate, right? If I can jump into a sports game and be, you know, marginally successful at it, if if I was tall, even as an adult, I know that as a, as a white male, if I throw a suit on, I can walk into a meeting anywhere and know that people are going to pay attention to me and assume that I have some sort of credentials or expertise just by the way I look, right? My guess is that your experience has probably been similar in that regard. Yes. Um, and, you know, that it's a good way to sort of shift into the next part of the conversation, right? Because if you understand and you have a, you have a good understanding of who you are as a person and what your identity is, then you can start to think about all of the privileges that come with that identity, right? There are both earned privileges and unearned privileges, okay. right? I, I was tall and had athletic parents, but I, I know I also worked hard right? Both as a student and as an athlete in the sports that I played. So I, I know I can take some credit for the successes I had in those areas. Same thing as I, as I apply it to sort of the workforce and my, my professional career. Those would be examples of earned privileges, right? Uh, things that I, I actively did things to have. Being white, being tall, having stable parents, the neighborhood that they chose to, for us to live in, all of those are unearned privileges, right? Things that I know that made my path easier than it otherwise might have been that I did nothing to control, okay? So part of this work, and, and again, I want to come back to that sort of sense of urgency I talked about uh, w with the conversation following May 14th. Typically when I do this work, we're dealing with a long runway, right? I have people in the room who are at least a tiny bit interested in learning and growing in this capacity, and we have the the luxury of time in front of us to figure out. Which how I will to do mention, it, right? we have about ten minutes. Okay, so, ten, Thank so not you. no luxury of time there. Um, <laughs> now I feel like that runway has gotten shorter. Sure, right. I, I feel like maybe let's not take all the time we otherwise would have to figure out the identity and the privilege pieces. You still have to do that work, right? But you can do it in action. Let's get to the action. Okay, right. So you know, if you understand the privileges, and and you having me here, having this conversation today is a great example of you using yours, Yes. right? You've earned these things through your hard work and coming to where you are professionally, and now you're helping to lead a conversation that we desperately need to keep having, right? Not just today, but over the long term. 
now I kind of want people to just show up and commit to the work and be willing to figure it out as they do so, which is a little different than the approach I've taken. And, and it's important, I think, that I started, I started this work with kids. Kids are way better at it than, than adults are. Uh, they're far more open to change, to new ideas. Adults sort of have to unlearn stuff a lot, uh, which takes more time. But I know adults can do it, right? And, and if, if a tragedy like May 14th is one of the things that compels them to show up, then, then let's shift the conversation a little, a little bit to, okay, you're here. Right. Now what do we do? Okay, so can you give me like some examples of how that might play yeah, out here? Yeah, so you do this work for a while, you have an understanding of what the privileges you have at the table, right? So as, a, as that white guy in the suit, I know that I can get people to pay attention to me and to the things I say, even if just for a moment. I also know that my colleagues of color, some of my female colleagues, colleagues with physical disabilities, may not get that same level of access. So if I can hold the door open or if I can provide a platform for them, then my responsibility becomes doing so and getting out of the way. Okay. Right? That's, okay. that's true allyship, right? The East Side does not need the white community to swoop in and fix everything for them. The East Side needs the white community to pay closer attention to what they've been asking for forever and to stand with them as we ensure that they start to get those resources, right? They don't need us to tell them how to do it. They need us to help make sure that the folks who can do it are. And that's that's an important distinction. You know, Jeremy, one of the things, not that this should be about me, but to hear you talk about what you know about yourself and how you can help others, you're also learning how your own strengths as well. It's an interesting, yes. you know, you know you can go into a room and you can command it, if only for a moment. That is invaluable, and it's an invaluable understanding of yourself. So there, there's a lot of benefits to this. Obviously, we're here talking about how we can help others, help we can make this city better, how we can make all of us rise up. But at the same time, there's so much benefit to taking this, the, the time to go through this exercise. Yeah. And it's really important. I want listeners to understand, like, I didn't, I didn't do any of this on purpose at first, right? I, I, I did this as a means of being able to better serve my students with whom I did not have parallel experience, right? So I couldn't know what it was like for my black student to have to walk through a night a white neighborhood to get to school after having taken two buses right i i do not have that lived experience i couldn't know what it was like for a gay student to come out to his or his mom and dad and the the nerves and anxiety around that right never had to deal with that myself i couldn't know what it was like for my female students to live in sort of a male-dominated society where their opinion wasn't held in as high regard and the curricula often wasn't representative of what they needed. I couldn't know those things. I, I couldn't have bone knowledge of it. But I did figure out that in doing this work, I was better able to stand with them and help them get what they need. And that applies to diversity work as well. And that's what I meant when I said it made me a better dad, it made me a better husband. You become more aware of who you are and what your place is, and that makes you better able to help others when they need it. I know we just have that five minutes left here, so we're not going to be able to kind of go through this whole synthesis. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm going to ask you to somewhat generalize. We talked just a little bit about my identity. And I'm sure in Buffalo, you've met a lot of people just like me almost beyond middle age, white, man, straight. What do we see? Because we're talking to a lot of people like that right now. What are those privileges that we should have a better understanding of and maybe how we can use those to become an ally? Well, so it's going to be different for every single person, right? But every single person will have privileges both earned, unearned. It doesn't even matter you know, if they've earned them or, unearned, or, or, or hadn't at, haven't at this point. The, the big takeaway that I want, this is scary work. Sure. Right? Any work that we do, any conversation we have around race is hard. Right. And we are going to mess it up. Right? I've been doing this for the better part of 15 have years Have you offended now. people? Oh, yes. And, and I've made terrible mistakes. Right? And but how did I've, you recover? Well, I've been lucky enough to have others who are willing to stand with me as I made them and guide me to better better places. Right? So... There's some bravery and courage involved in this, right? But there's also a heck of a lot of humility. And a lot of times those things are linked. 
you, you have to be willing. The most important thing is to stand is to is to show up, right? Be there, right? The second most important thing is is to listen and pay attention. You do not need to know the answers. You can't possibly know the answers. None of us can have the shared experience of everybody else. So show up, listen, and then when the opportunity comes for you to use one of your privileges, one of your talents, one of your resources to make sure that the person next to you who isn't getting the same treatment you are can get that treatment, then you may not have to say anything. It's just being there, standing shoulder to shoulder with your fellow human being and making sure they're taken care of. And really, I mean, from a 30,000-foot view, if you apply that lens to our lives in general, <laughs> there's not very much bad that's going to come from that. And it certainly applies to how white folks like me can be a better ally to my black neighbors and my black friends who just aren't afforded the same types of privileges that I am in those ways. Jeremy Besh is with us. We're coming down to our final couple of minutes here um, on uh, Buffalo. What's next? Uh, some let's make sure we get some contact information because I think or websites we can go to uh, because I'm sure right now people who have been staying with us throughout this are curious about this for themselves. Sure. What can we? Uh, what kind of information can we give them? So, um, really. Um in terms of uh, informational educational stuff, um, a foundational document for me in learning all of this is an article that you can find online called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Dr. Peggy McIntosh, white university professor. I, I believe she wrote the article in the late 80s. I won't give the story away, but essentially she discovered in conversation with some black colleagues that there was a whole list of things that were afforded her as privileges that her black colleagues did not share. And a it's key part of that read. story, because you told me this before, was also the fact that she was quite, kind of complaining about how she felt that she was being left out, but yeah. she really discovered something new about her black counterparts. Yeah, and, and, and she discovered it by opening up and having legitimate conversation. That article lists 50 examples, more than 50 examples, of white privilege, things that Dr. McIntosh didn't have to think about on a daily basis that her colleagues did. It was eye-opening for me. Un um, unpacking the? Invisible knapsack. Un yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and it, it, it was eye-opening for me because it made me realize that I don't need to know all of this stuff. I just need to be willing to stand with people who need help and help them. Jeremy Besh, you helped me, and hopefully you're helping a lot of other folks, and hopefully we're going to help everybody here in the City Bubble. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jay. Take care. That was Jay Morant with Jeremy Besh from June 10th of last year. We'll be right back with more Buffalo What's Next right here on WBFO. Hey, is this thing on? Test, test, one, two. Sounds great. Let's go. The podcast world is overflowing with more than 750,000 podcasts to choose from. But for great local podcasts, you can now go to one place, the new Amplify BTPM Pods app. Here you can discover content produced in Western New York and Southern Ontario, our own backyard. With a wide variety of genres to choose from, there is something for everyone. Listen to the best independently produced podcasts in the region anywhere, anytime. Download the free Amplify BTPM Pods app wherever you get your apps and begin exploring your local podcast community now. I'm Kraus Schallhorn with Mindful Music. Join me for thoughtful and in-depth conversation with my many different guests from around the region and the world as they discuss how music helps and heals in times of stress and everyday life. Listen to Mindful Music Saturdays at 4 p.m. right here on WBFO, your NPR station. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we end the show with Bridget J. Povalens and speaking with Will Green from June 23rd of last year. Will, thank you for joining us today. You've been out in the community. Um, it's been a month, a little over a month now. How, how are people? How are things? 
So thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so being in the community for me, a lot of it means uh, being in the spaces that the work is being done. So it is promising to see the support that the community has had. Um, I think everybody kind of went to work in the fields that I work in, education and after school programming. You have a lot of folks who are frontline workers. And es essentially, as soon as the tragedy happened, they just jumped right into action. And then with so many resources being pumped into the community, um, you needed people to deliver those resources. You needed people to set up the logistics of how to deliver those resources. And I would say in this last month, folks have gotten to work. Um, I'm a little wary of the busyness of it all because I know a trauma response is to stay busy and you're not really processing what has happened. So in the work that I do and in the conversations that I'm having with everyday folks, I'm really trying to encourage them to pay special attention to how they feel about what has happened as they continue to be busy because there is so much work to do. It's important. Self-care is important, um, certainly. And then once all of that busyness goes away, you're left with yourself, and if you haven't dealt with some of that or any of that, um, you're heading for what could potentially be a really difficult mental health time for you. And that translates into physical problems that you may start encountering. Um, I know that the county, at least, has said that they will keep mental health services available in the neighborhood for people, and that is is very promising. Um, other than the increased presence um, and certainly the, the busyness and activity, um, what other changes have you seen? Uh, you know, so it, it is a lot of reactionary things. Um, and once again, so I don't want to say that I don't appreciate the support that has been given, but a lot of it certainly seems to be uh, a response in terms of sympathy as opposed to empathy. And it's like, oh, this terrible tragedy happened. What can we do immediately to make people feel better? Mm. You know, um, there's an interesting power dynamic at play that I think has contributed to the conditions to allow an incident like this to happen that is continuing on in our response to it. So I'm very interested to know who made the decision that the response should be to donate food and all of these other things, because we know that I'll just use that famous quote that somehow we seem to be forgetting about uh, in this time. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man a fish, you feed him for a lifetime. So right. what happens when all the groceries are gone and this building is opened up again, which there's another power dynamic there. <laughs> yes. What happens when all these things go away and the people in the community still have to deal with what happened and the lack of resources, the lack of power to affect their condition? You know, so it's just a very interesting dynamic that I'm observing. Let me check in with you personally. How are you, how are you doing? That's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, I'm a native son of Buffalo, you know, I'm right. born and raised in East Buffalo, the east side of Buffalo. Went to Buffalo Public Schools, graduated school 53, which is right around the corner from Jefferson and um, Ferry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember going to the Apollo Theater on school field trips. I remember going to the library that was on, excuse me, Utica Street right across from the plaza. So, you know, this incident, it hit me hard. You know, my father grew up in a house on Glenwood and my grandparents owned that house. I went to that house every day. Um, I know a lot of the people who still live in that community, Cold Springs community. Um, but I've also experienced my share of trauma. Mm. And growing up in the late 80s, early 90s on the east side of Buffalo, you know, it's a tough, difficult thing. Um, I've lost two brothers, Stephen Barney and Corey Green, to violence. You know, I've lost best friends to violence. As an educator, I've lost countless students to violence. 
So there's a certain, I would say, shell that you develop when it comes to trauma and violent trauma specifically. Um, and it makes, for me, it makes me more pensive. You know, mm. think about how did we get here? How did these things happen? And then I go into action. So for me, it's a part of my life work to help address these issues and not just, you know, the reactionary things, but what can we do to prevent things like this from happening? So certainly I'm aware of my emotions just from those experiences before and going through that, keeping busy to not think about it and dealing with that ultimate, you know, reaction of, wow, this really happened. Right. And the sadness and the guilt and the anger and everything else you feel. I still have those feelings now, but now because of my experiences, I would say my approach or at least my ability to handle them is a lot different from before. There's a certain numbness that happens when you are continuously and repeatedly um, exposed to trauma. Uh and that is part, then, of the community trauma response, because you're talking about a community that has been victimized via several means, certainly, you know, not specifically a, a shooting of this type, but shootings nonetheless, violence nonetheless, um, you know, police action nonetheless, economic action nonetheless. And so all of that really informs the response that the neighborhood has and it leaves that impression on youth um which you know you are the regional office director for youth success so tell me about that and tell me what youth success looks like <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> so you know the New York State Network for Youth Success is an out-of-school-time advocacy agency, a not-for-profit. It's based out of Albany. I'm the regional director for Western New York. Um, so student success <laughs> signs all the things we're dealing with currently is students that are empowered, families that are empowered to make decisions about their future that have positive outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. To get them to think about their future in a way that presents itself in the form of making decisions about how they become educated, what they become educated on, and then what they do in their future to increase the value of their lives, their communities, and the entire city, the region, what have you, right? Right now, what is student success? And I'm going to go back to, I guess, this discussion that we're nibbling at in terms of trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. What does trauma do to you, right? We, we know when you're faced with trauma and then even a history of trauma, uh, you get caught up in this permanent uh, fight, flight, and then they say flee or flock response, right? right? And what that does is it prevents your prefrontal cortex, I'm going to get a little scientific on you, but the executive part of our brain that makes executive decisions, we can't think straight when we're impacted by trauma. And this can continue on for years and years and years, specifically for when youth experience trauma at a young age and don't learn how to process it. So the goal right now, in my view, is to make sure that our educators, our staff in after school and out of school time programming are prepared to help support students in activating that executive functioning and thinking in their brain, even though they've experienced significant trauma. And really, it's helping them process this trauma so that they can then move forward into a successful future. So this is a I mean, trauma has a physiological response in the body. It literally changes your DNA. Um, it changes cells and the way your brain operates. How, how do you help facilitate moving a, a child, a youth, if you will, out of that response into something that's, I wouldn't even say more positive, per se, but in a better direction. How, what does that look like? How do you do that? So, you know, how you combat those things that I'm talking about, 
um, fight, flight, or free, this um, hyper-vigilance, this overreaction to things that maybe someone who hasn't experienced trauma would look at him like, wow, why are you having such a reaction? And actually, what it boils down to is safety. And how do you make people feel safe? You build positive and supportive relationships, Mm -hmm. right? Positive and supportive relationships is the first key. Because then in a positive and supportive relationship, let's say a child has a positive and supportive relationship with an adult at a school or in an after school program or in a community program, then that opens the door for deeper discussion and deeper connection about what are the things that trouble that child. It's great that we have mental health counselors coming into the area and they are accessible. But in my experience, in general, students aren't going to self-identify and say, hey, yeah, I want to run down and talk to the counselor. Right. Parents aren't going to self-identify like, yeah, you know, my kid was doing this at home and I think they should talk to the counselor. We know there are a lot of issues around that. But when we have highly qualified professionals who work at developing those positive and sustainable relationships with kids, those conversations will arise. We want to make sure that those adults have the skills and tools necessary to direct those conversations in a positive manner. And if possible, if necessary, provide the additional support of counseling from other areas. But we know the first point of contact is going to be through a trusting and caring relationship with an adult. It's my job to make sure that we have people that are going to be aware of that and they know what to do when it arises. How important is it for the youth to really identify a counselor or trusted person, a social worker who looks like them? It's extremely important. It's extremely important. And, you know, but to be honest, I think what we need are individuals who are culturally competent, because the reality is for all the children and students that we have, there are not enough of those people who look like us in those positions. So the first thing is we need to make sure that everyone in the field is culturally competent. All right. And then now you're going to get into this systems issue. Right. So it's great to say we need more. But what do those systems look like that produce these counselors? Right. Once we start to look at those systems, then we understand the connection to the shooting. Right. There's a historical and systemic connection that is producing these results and producing individuals with the intent to harm people of color that also keep people of color away from these positions. So I don't want to talk about, oh, there aren't enough. What I want to talk about is why aren't there enough and what do we need to do to increase the people who look like us, people of color in these positions. You are also the director for the Center of for Urban Education over at Canisius College. Um, talk to me about urban education, what that is <laughs> exactly. So I've been an educator. Um, I've been in education for almost 30 years. Um, and I've taught a diverse group of students from all different demographics, ages, background, I'm pretty sure religion, ethnicity, color, right? Um, and make no mistake about it, good teaching is good teaching. Period. <laughs> okay? Period. Period. And Period. But to address some of the issues that we know are prevalent in education that disproportionately affect students of color, we have to focus on urban education because that's where the majority of students of color are. But good teaching is good teaching no matter where. My goal as a director for the Center for Urban Education is to take practices that are in areas where there's a high concentration of students of color, a high concentration of students in poverty, a high concentration of students who have been disenfranchised to take those practices and hold them up and show that these practices are best practices anywhere you go. So a quality educator in an urban environment is a quality educator in a suburban environment, is a quality educator in a rural environment. It's just all about how they approach it and how these educators in these spaces inform themselves about the communities in which they teach in. Talk to me about 
teaching history. Mm-hmm. No, no easy <laughs> subjects today. I mean, you know, here's the thing. Uh, there's schooling and there's education. And schooling is going to give you a certain set of skills. What I was led to believe as a child and my parents pumped into me, you go to school and then you go to college and then you get the diploma and then you get the job. Right. Right. But what I realized through that experience going to school 53, where I got a shout out school 53, the <laughs> five, three, <laughs> uh, Nan Woods, big shout out, rest in peace, Nan Woods, black principal. We had black teachers. It was a wonderful experience. K through eight going to school 53. We valued education. I remember competing with my classmates or not even competing, just sharing. What did you get in this class? What did you get in that class? It was a competition. It was healthy competition. Mm-hmm. And then going from a school that was 99% African-American with African-American teachers and principals to then going to Hutch Tech and being a minority and then realizing what that meant, um, being treated differently and a young black male saying to myself at the age of 13, wow, why are they treating me like this? You know? Right. Um, so I'm sorry. I kind of lost track. What was that original question? Because I want to get to it because it's a good one. This is live. So uh, it is. Um, why? Oh, the is history. It, yes. History. History. So history is important. And I got a smidgen of it at 53. But it was just enough to inform me about what my goal and purpose was as a young African-American male. I really did not go deep into the history of black people in America until I became a teacher and was confronted with issues in the classroom that I had no solutions for. And I was blessed to have mentor teachers. My first experience as a teacher was in an alternative school in Rochester, New York, and I co-taught, I was an English teacher, seventh through 12th grade. I co-taught with a seventh through 12th grade social studies teacher who was, his name was Mr. Williams. Shout out to Mr. Williams in Rochester if he's still around. God bless him. He was a social studies teacher, Negro League baseball player. And then I also commuted back and forth from Buffalo to Rochester every day with my mentor, Akil Ajamu, who has been an educator his whole life. And they poured into me information about black history. They poured into me information about the history of education in America. They suggested books. And with five books that they may have suggested, you know, I'll read that book and go into the bibliography and find more books. And then I really learned more about the historical context of African-Americans in America and education. History provides the blueprint for how we move forward. Mm -hmm. period, point blank. And I believe that there are too many people who are unaware of even recent history and the impact of decisions that have been made on where we are now. So how does racism and bias inform the education that is received in school currently, that students are, are learning currently? I mean, you know, I'm I'm not going to date myself, but back in the day, the first time you heard about Africans, they were being brought over as slaves. There there was they just apparently dropped out of the sky. So how does that inform as as educators, the the students, how does how does that inform how they see themselves? So it's interesting, right? So how does sugar inform the taste of a cake <laughs> when you bake it, <laughs> right? You know, it, 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 it's in there, right? So I don't think that racism and bias is informing education. If we study the history of public education in America and how it came to be, we know that is a system based on separating the haves and the have-nots. Traditionally, education was only for people who could afford it. And that means afford it with the finances or afford the time to go to school. My grandfather had an education up to the third grade. You know why? Because his father owned a farm and he needed him to work the farm, not go to school. Right. (laughs) Right. So it's interesting. You talk about slavery and we say, oh, yes, slaves were bought from Africa. It's the context 
mm-hmm. people were bought from Africa and enslaved. When you say it that way, it shows you the humanity and it shows you the historical context of who wrote the book. <laughs> History is written by the victors. Exactly. The lion the hunter tells the story differently than the lion. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what role does systemic racism play in the choices a student could make, would make, or should make? Because racism is baked into the culture of how we exist and interact daily, and because look at this incident at tops because we have not successfully as a country addressed the atrocities of slavery post-slavery with reconstruction jim crow uh you know lynchings all of these things all of these things up till now because we have not adequately addressed them what it does is it creates almost these conditions where folks can act upon it in the way that they feel they should, Mm. right? We need to collectively address the impact. We need to collectively look at each and every system and how it operates and scrub out inequity. And what that means is we need to acknowledge that there are different ways of doing things. As an educator, quite honestly, every few years, there is some type of incident to remind us how gross and ugly racism and the othering of humans is. And then we come together, we have these conversations. What must we do? What must we do? And you know, when I was younger, oh, oh, you want to know? Hey, we can do this. We can do this. And then the second time around, you didn't hear me that time. Here, we can do this. We can do that. Now, I'm quite straight up with it. (laughs) Now, I'm quite like, well, you want more students of color in your school? Then you need to find out what intelligence truly is for people who do not look like you. You need to open your eyes to a new way of thinking because what we understand about intelligence is it's not a monolithic thing. Right. Intelligence has many different facets and I think we've been unwilling, and I'm gonna say we because we're all in this together, we've been unwilling to acknowledge the beauty and the gift that other people have because it doesn't come in a traditional package. It doesn't look like what one's traditional picture of that is, and so then subsequently it it must be wrong or inaccurate. Right, or it makes you feel a little strange. We had a conversation prior to me showing up. I'm like, well, you know, what should I wear? And I was like, well, I want to represent the hip-hop culture, so I'm going to dress the way I feel comfortable. Why do we need to have those conversations and discussions? <laughs> That's a, a good question. One can certainly say so so that one doesn't show up sans clothing to an interview, because that might be inappropriate. <laughs> well, I agree we should wear clothes. <laughs> Helpful. Um, let's talk about racist extremism what role do you think social media played or plays in the massacre so you know as an educator and as someone that you know i'm I'm deeply connected to the lives of young people i'm interested in the lives of young people Um, I tell educators all the time, you know, this is the only profession you get to touch the future at some point in time. If you can connect with a youth later on in life, they're going to bring up something that you taught them. You can live forever. So social media in general, the Internet in general, has created a space for youth in which adults have limited access. Mm. Um, Some of the social media sites that, um, you know, this murderer was accessing our encrypted sites that no one can get into unless you give them an invite. So what it does is it creates a space for people. I told you we need to scrub out every inch of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it gives it a space to hide. It gives a space for racism to go. And now you connect with folks who have a similar thinking. There are no alternative viewpoints. Um, all it does is escalate the hate. And it becomes a space where you have no counter view 
and that can take you in some very poor directions. So I think the key thing is that in these spaces, anything can happen, especially if we're hiding from some of the realities of our situations in this country and how we got here. People are comfortable behind their keyboards, behind their phone screens. Uh, they often lack the courage uh, to actually face a person uh, and have a discussion about biases, about you know inequity and equality. How do you start that conversation? I think you have to live it. I think we're in a position now where we can't separate and compartmentalize parts of our lives. As a black man and going through academia, working in academia, working in professional settings, I have to acknowledge the fact that I had to compartmentalize and store away certain aspects of who I was in these spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think that has created a situation where the expectation is that you show up with this version and you leave those things at home. I think the things that we've left at home would have been better served being put out in front for people to have to deal with and acknowledge so that we can come to some common ground. Not saying, hey, I'm just going to leave this part of who I am somewhere right. else so you don't have to deal with it. To, I think, to make someone else comfortable. Yep. To feel comfortable. Yes. Um, would you be willing to have a conversation with a, a racist, a white supremacist, uh, um, you know, ultra right wing conservative who may see you as other already? What would you would you be willing to have the conversation? One and two, what would you say to them to potentially change their mind? So I, I have to answer both of those questions from the viewpoint of an educator, right? Mm -hmm. If you ask a doctor, do they believe in the power of healing in medicine? A doctor goes, oh, yes, most definitely. We can solve or we can help heal people because we have this technology. As an educator, I believe in the transformative power of education. I believe in the transformative power of knowledge. I believe that we as human beings can continue to learn and grow with the right environment and the right opportunity. Um, in the work that I've done, <laughs> I've spoken to rooms of hundreds of people. Uh, I'm pretty sure there were some racists in there. <laughs> uh, and I'll be honest with you. I think the highest form of intelligence is sitting down at a table with someone who you disagree with and maybe someone who does not like you or hates you and still being able to have a conversation because I absolutely need to know how you became what you are. How you got that way. <laughs> yeah. How did you get that I way? I absolutely need to know. And, you know, to answer your question, my goal was to never change, to change a mind. I, don't, I think that's a very difficult thing to do. Right. We as individuals have difficulty with making decisions about going in what direction we want to go in. So for me as an outsider to come and say, I'm going to change your mind is I think that's an impossibility. What I can do is present information to you and what I know about you and what you share with me about you get you to hold up your life experience with the information I present to you that may be new or counter to what you believe and allow you to make a decision about how you move forward. That's the best that we can do. But then we also have to walk away from that table and move forward with the power that we have to change the conditions in our lives and hope that we get some allies along the way. And that will do it for today's Summertime Producer Pick episode. We would like to thank our guests, Jeremy Bash and Will Green. If you missed this and you'd like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts or the new Amplified BTPM app. And each episode is available online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening. <laughs>